Awesome. Thank you so much, Kelly. Thank you, worship team. How many of you guys are grateful for the preparation and the work that they put in every single week to lead us into the presence of God? Listen, if you are somebody who enjoys worship, uh, I want to invite you back this Wednesday at 7 o'clock. We are having a night of worship. Normally, we try to do these one a quarter. In the last couple quarters, there's been conflicts and things that have popped up that have made it difficult for us to do that. But we're bringing it back. And so I'm excited to be able to spend a night of extended worship and a short message. And uh, look forward to you guys coming back here to be a part of that. If you're new here this morning, welcome. My name is Pete. I serve as the lead pastor, whether you're in the room or you're joining us online right now. We're, we're grateful to have you with us today as uh, we kick off a brand new series today called The Unseen Realm. Unseen Realm. You know, with so much of our, our culture's focus and attention shifting to witches and ghosts and ghouls and goblins and, you know, scary movies and paranormal activity around this time of the year, as a church, we wanted to turn our attention to God's Word to see what it has to say about those things, about the unseen realm. So if you have your Bibles today, would you please turn to the Old Testament book of 2 Kings? We're going to be in chapter 6 in just a moment. While you're turning there, I want to give you kind of a brief overview of what we're going to talk about over the course of the next three weeks. Today, my hope is to kind of lay a foundation for us and talk about what I see in the culture and in the church today as being two contrasting worldviews as it relates to the seen and unseen realms. So that's going to be today. Next week is going to be a little bit of a different type of message in that I'm going to attempt to, one at a time, address some of the questions that we asked you in the survey that went out in the last couple weeks. We posted it on social media as well. Questions related to the supernatural, like, you know, Ouija boards and crystals and magic and, and things like that. And so we're going to address those next week. Uh, I'm excited for that. And then in week three, we're going to talk about how the Holy Spirit gives us gifts to empower us to in, engage in a spiritual battle that's taking place in the unseen world so that we can live supernatural lives. So that's kind of you know a brief overview of where we're going to go over the next three weeks in this series. But to kick things off, I looked up this week and there was a recent study shown, a survey where over 2,000 Americans uh, ages 21 and older were asked several questions about the supernatural, and 63% of those surveyed said they believe in the paranormal of some kind, in some form, 63%, which is very interesting to me because the majority of those people would also say that they ascribe to a naturalistic worldview, which is what I'm going to talk about here in just a moment. But even those of us who are Christians and believe in the supernatural, I think there are, we see kind of two camps in, in the Christian world and, and two problems within those camps uh, as it relates to our approach to this topic. Number one, there's a lot of Christians that, that say they believe in the supernatural, but, but they think and live like skeptics. Any talk about the supernatural makes them really uncomfortable. And I find this to be especially true amongst people who grew up in non-charismatic type of churches when they grew up. There are two basic reasons why I think non-charismatics are uncomfortable with the supernatural. One is their suspicion that charismatic practices are kind of detached from an incorrect view and application of scripture. And number two is their own rationalism, which is a worldview that the ancient biblical writers would have found very foreign. You know, Christian teaching for centuries has kept the unseen realm at an arm's length. They believe in God, a supernatural God, because what's the point of Christianity without it? But all other forms of talk about the unseen and angels and demons and supernatural is kind of like, you know, talked about with a whisper or a chuckle. The second serious shortcoming comes in the other camp, which is in charismatic circles, which not always, but a lot of times my experience has been that they elevate experience over scripture. Charismatics have no problem embracing the idea of there being an active, unseen realm, but their conception of that realm is largely framed by experience or by an inaccurate and uninformed understanding of scripture or by really bad teaching. And both of these shortcomings, while they may sound different, are actually born out of the same fundamental underlying problem 
which is that modern Christianity's view of the unseen world is not based on the supernatural view of the biblical writers. One segment wrongly relegates talk of the supernatural to the outer edges of theological discussion, whereas the other camp is so interested in engaging with the supernatural that they forget about the importance of staying rooted and grounded on the, the, what the scripture says and teaches, and it results in some weird caricature. And so it's intriguing to me that here in the West, there, there seems to be, in my opinion, a paradox of belief in the supernatural coupled with, at the same time, skepticism of the supernatural. And this results from what I'm calling a clashing of two world views. We're going to talk about that today. As Christians, if we want to relate to a supernatural God and read a supernatural book, but we try to do that through a naturalistic worldview, we're going to live lives that fall far short of the supernatural lives that God wants us to live. So through this series, we're going to look at this word to see what it has to say. We're going to ask God to kind of reframe our hearts and our minds around the unseen realm. So we're going to dive in, 2 Kings chapter 6. We're going to read verses 8 through 17. When the king of Aram was at war with Israel, he would confer with his officers and say, we will mobilize our forces at such and such a place. But immediately Elisha, the man of God, would warn the king of Israel, do not go near that place, for the Arameans are planning to mobilize their troops there. So the king of Israel would send word to the place indicated by the man of God, and time and again, Elisha warned the king so that he would have to be on alert there. The king of Aram became very upset over this, called his officers together and demanded, all right, which one of you is the traitor? Who's been informing the king of Israel of my plans? It's not us. My lord, the king, one of the officers replied, Elisha, the prophet in Israel, tells the king of Israel, even the words you speak in the privacy of your bedroom. That's a scary thought. King says, go and find out where he is so I can send troops to seize him. And the report comes back, Elisha's in Dothan. So one night, the king of Aram sent a great army with many chariots and horses to surround the city. And when the servant of the man of God got up early the next morning and went outside, there were troops, horses, and chariots everywhere. Oh, sir, what will we do now? The young man cried to Elisha. Elisha's like, chill out. Don't be afraid, for there are more on our side than on theirs. Then Elisha prayed, oh, Lord, open his eyes and let him see. That's my prayer for us today. God, open our eyes. Let us see into the unseen realm. And when Elisha prayed that, the Lord opened the young man's eyes, and when he looked up, he saw the hillside around Elisha was filled with horses and chariots of fire. Pretty cool story. One of hundreds of others like it that show us there is more to this world that we live in than meets the eye. I'm a child of the 80s, and one of the, uh, the cartoons that I really enjoyed watching when I was a kid growing up, when I came home from school, or especially Saturday mornings, was Transformers. Anybody Transformers fans out there? Autobots, Decepticons, right? Um, I know they've made a bunch of movies about those guys in the last, I don't know, 15 years or so, and yes, I've watched every single one of them. But how many of you remember the, the tagline to the theme song of the cartoon to Transformers? Transformers, more than meets the eye, right? Well, that show, like life, there is more than meets the eye to the world that we live in. In this story here, we see Israel coming under attack from the Syrian army coming down from the north that's wanting to conquer Israel. And every time they launch an attack, his plans get foiled because there's this man in Israel named Elisha who's a prophet that has the ability to get words and knowledge from God, divine knowledge, that tells him what the Syrian king's plan is. And Elisha then sends word to the king of Israel to say, hey, the Syrian king's planning on attacking here. And so the king of Israel would alter his strategy, pull his troops away from there, and it would happen over and over again to the point where the Syrian king is like, what is going on? Which one of you is a traitor? One of you got to be telling them what our plans are because every time we go, my plans are foiled. And they're like, it's not us, king. There's this prophet down there named Elisha who like, he is so like 
freaky. He can hear the words you say in the privacy of your own bedroom. He's like, well, we got to stop this guy. Where is he? And they send out a scout. They find out he's in Dothan. And the king sends down an entire army to capture him and seize him. And Elisha had a servant who wakes up one morning. Imagine being this servant, waking up one morning, walking outside your tent to do your morning business. And you are surrounded by troops and horses and chariots. He runs in. He's like, Elisha, we're going to die. What are we going to do? And Elisha's like, chill, bro. Like, calm down, slow your roll. Like, there are more with us than there are with them. And I wonder, I mean, I like to insert myself in the story sometime. I wonder what the servant's response was to that. Maybe that wasn't recorded. I wonder, if it was me, I'd be like, um, I really appreciate your enthusiastic optimism, Elisha, but there's a whole lot of people out there that don't look very happy, that look like they want to kill us, and there's only two of us. And that's when Elisha prays this incredible prayer. God, open his eyes that he may see. And all of a sudden, God opens his eyes and gives him the ability to see into the unseen realm, heavenly armies, angelic beings, and chariots of fire completely surrounding and outnumbering the Syrian army. God gave him the ability to see what was already there. And similarly, if we today, if God would open up our eyes to see into the spiritual realm, we would see a whole lot of interesting activity happening all around us. There's more than meets the eye. The Bible is a supernatural book. But unfortunately, we try to read it through a naturalistic lens and worldview which in my opinion is one of the greatest challenges facing the American church today. See, we are children of the Enlightenment, a period of time that produced philosophers like John Locke and David Hume and scientists like Sir Francis Bacon, who's considered to be the father of the scientific method, who'd be like, no, we need empirical evidence and data to measure and prove everything we observe. And so the thought leaders from the Enlightenment produced a general skepticism about anything supernatural or spiritual. And since then, what's happened over the last several hundred years is that we've come to the conclusion that everything we believed prior to the Enlightenment is just superstition. And we've got to put all that stuff away now because now we know how the world works. We have an understanding of time and matter and space, and we know how light and sound waves travel, and, you know, we have you know, we understand physics and all of that, and we've got a grip on how our world works. Our society has embraced this naturalistic worldview, and it has infiltrated the church as well, which has resulted in a clash of worldviews that produces a conflict within us as believers, because our hearts want to believe and engage in and have relationship with a supernatural God, but our minds are conflicted because we've been raised up and educated in a system that has completely adopted this naturalistic worldview. And so there's this conflict within us because of these clashing worldviews of a naturalistic worldview versus a supernatural worldview. So we have to decide as believers... Are we going to continue to operate with a naturalistic worldview? Are we going to start living supernatural lives by believing in the supernatural worldview that God presents to us through his revealed word? First of all, let me give you guys a definition for what I'm talking about when I say a naturalistic worldview. Alvin Platinga is considered to be this last century's most brilliant philosopher, most brilliant philosopher of the 20th century, says this. He says, a naturalistic worldview is a philosophy that says everything arises from natural processes, properties, and causes, and is sustained by natural elements and physical laws. Supernatural or spiritual explanations are excluded or discounted. So someone with a naturalistic worldview would say that anybody who has a spiritual or supernatural belief today is just holding on to an archaic and outdated idea from our ancient man's, our ancient ancestors, you know, attempts to try to explain something that they didn't have the knowledge to understand, that they didn't have the ability to understand. 
But now we understand because we have science. And how many of you have seen, even over the course of a pandemic, how in our culture we've had elevated science to a religion and scientists to a priesthood? How many of you know that science is always changing? Like, it's always changing. And science used to believe and teach that the earth was flat, and then science proved it wasn't. Science, you know, there were doctors that up until 1990 said that with newborn babies, you should lay them on their stomach so that they don't choke if they spit up. But then in 1992, the American Academy of Pediatrics said, no, you have to lay infants on their backs instead. The science changed. Our parents' generation, they said, smoking won't kill you. Smoking's totally fine for your health. Then they discovered, oh, actually, it is a little bit damaging to your health. Science is always changing. And before the Enlightenment, scientists, for the most part, never saw science as a way to disprove God. They saw it as the avenue through which they could learn more about God's creation and how it worked. It never led them away from a belief in God. It always led them towards, man, there has got to be an intelligent designer and creator behind all of this. So when someone says to me today, well, the science says, I'm kind of like, what science exactly? Because science is always changing, and not only that, but there's like a hundred views on every single issue. So what science are you actually referring to? For example, let me give you an example of this. For years, science has known and taught, thanks to Einstein's theory of relativity, that space-time, which is the dimension we live in, like the universe we live in, space-time has four dimensions. Three spatial dimensions and one time dimension. The three spatial dimensions, we can move left, right, forward, backward, up, down, and then there's the time dimension. So that's been the commonly held belief for the last, you know, quite a bit, but for the last 40 or 50 years now, there are astrophysicists and theoretical physicists that have been doing digging and studying and, and being able to dissect the atom to the subatomic level and things that we've never been able to see before. And they're now saying they study string theory and they say that there are not four dimensions in the universe. There are 10 dimensions in the universe. The more we discover about the cosmos and the universe of the world we live in, the more we're realizing at every level, even to the subatomic level, with things that we can't see with the natural eye, just how much there is that we don't know and we don't understand. There's never been a scientific discovery that has disproved the existence of God. In fact, over and over again, it continues to point people back to the fact that there is an intelligent designer and creator that made everything we see. Let me give you another quote from Alvin Platinga. He said this, naturalism is presumed to not be a religion. However, in one very important respect, it resembles religion by performing the cognitive portion of religion. There is a set of deep human questions to which religion typically provides an answer. In like manner, naturalism gives a set of answers to these questions. So naturalism has become the religion of modern man in its attempt to answer some of these deep, fundamental human questions that we all ask at some point in our journey on planet Earth, some people consider this to be these existential questions, but like at some point we all begin to wonder like what's the point of all this? Where did we, like these deep human questions that religion has had one set of answers for, but now naturalism is providing a different set of answers. Questions like, where do we come from? It's a question that mankind has been asking for millennia. And naturalism's answer to that question came from Charles Darwin who wrote The Origin of Species. And he said that man is not the result of a supernatural being that created him. No, 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 no. Man is the result of naturalistic processes that randomly occurred over billions and billions of years. And man is the you know, distant relative of the primate. So that's naturalism's answer to the question of where did we come from? How about the question of like, what's wrong with the world? Why is the world so broken? Why is there so much suffering? Religion historically has said, well, the answer to that question is sin. But another post-enlightenment philosopher, Karl Marx, a German philosopher from the 1800s, said that the brokenness in the world is because there's always going to be a struggle between the powerful and the weak, the rich and the poor, and that all the brokenness can be attributed to this constant struggle for power. 
So that's naturalism's answer to that fundamental human question. How about the question of like, what's wrong with me? Forget the world. Like how many of you in your own brokenness have looked in the mirror ever and just said like, what's wrong with me? I can't figure out why I'm so broken, why I keep repeating these things, why I can't overcome. Well, another naturalistic philosopher arose whose name was Sigmund Freud, the father of psychoanalysis. And he gave a psychological answer to this ontological question and said that what's wrong with you is all due to sexual repression. That if the answer is if you just remove all of the constraints and repressive ideologies of religion and these beliefs and value systems and, and you just express yourself sexually and pursue pleasure at all costs, that's when you'll find real fulfillment and meaning. And ironically enough, I think a lot of the problems we have in our society today can be traced back to the sexual revolution that really was spurred by Sigmund Freud. And then there's this question of like, where do I belong? Like, where do I find community? Every human being wants to know where they belong. And another pillar of the religion of science emerged not long ago, whose name was Steve Jobs. And Steve Jobs took what other people saw as just glorified adding machine and said, no, that's, that's a means of personal expression and connection. And he took the computer, your music, you know, your phone, your internet, and put it all on one device. And there are now billions of smartphones all around the planet, providing people the opportunity to instantly connect with someone else and find their community to belong in. And so Darwin, Marx, Freud, and Jobs all together serve like a priesthood attempting to answer these questions that religion have typically answered, but now from a naturalistic worldview. And it's built on the philosophical assumptions of guys like Hume and Locke and others like them. Naturalism has become the religion of modern man. And what it's attempting to do is kind of pull on and try to remove the God thread of the fabric of society, which is why we see society beginning to unravel. As opposed to a supernatural worldview that believes that the Bible is a revelation of a supernatural God who created the heavens and the earth to reveal himself to us who's revealed to us where we come from, who's revealed to us what's wrong with the world, who's revealed to us what's wrong with us, and who has revealed to us where we find life and belonging and community and meaning and purpose. He's revealed it to us. A supernatural worldview doesn't exclude natural reality, but it does include more than what can be observed or tested by natural sciences and allows for the supernatural possibilities. Just like the story that we read earlier from 2 Kings of Elisha's servant's eyes being opened to see the heavenly armies surrounding them on the hillside. One story of hundreds of others like it that show us there is more to this world than meets the eye. The unseen realm is all around us. And so what I want to do for the remainder of our time today is give you a very broad cursory overview and share three differences between the seen and the unseen realms. And I say broad and cursory because as I dove into this topic earlier this week in preparation for today's message in the series, I realized how broad of a topic it is. Like we could literally spend months and months and months on this topic and not even begin to scratch the surface of all that God's word contains as it relates to the unseen realm. But I wanna give you just three differences between the seen and the unseen realms, and the first one is this. The seen realm is temporal, the unseen realm is eternal. Temporal relates to that which is of this world and temporary. Eternal means that which was, that which is, and that which will always be. It will last forever. That's eternal. Look at what Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 4.18. We do not focus on what is seen, but on what is unseen. For what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. 
So the things that you and I see in the natural, the things that we can feel, taste, touch, smell, hear, the things we think are real, Paul is saying those are temporary. They're not going to last forever, which is the exact opposite of the naturalistic worldview that says the physical world is really all that there is. This is what's real. This is all that exists. And anything that's spiritual or supernatural is just something we've made up to make us feel better about life and give us the hope that maybe there's something, you know, after this life that will, you know, give meaning to these difficult lives we lead. But Paul says no. The stuff that we see, the stuff that we can feel, touch, taste, smell, that's all temporary. It's not going to last. It's real, but it's not going to last. There's some stuff that we can't see, stuff in the unseen spiritual realm that will last forever. And what we need to understand is that this unseen realm we're talking about is not like millions and billions of light years away in some distant corner of the galaxy or the universe. It's right here. It's right in front of you. It's all around us. It's overlapping and running these flies. <laughs> Jesus called Satan Beelzebub, which means Lord of the flies. And for the last two weeks, these flies, I rebuke you, Satan. Get behind me in the name of Jesus. Driving me crazy. Whoa. But these unseen and seen realms overlap each other. They run concurrently with one another. If, if God could kind of like peel back the curtain for us, we would see some really interesting things happening all around us. We would see some interesting beings. We would see angels and demons. Which, if you're interested in learning more about angels and demons, we did a series last year called Supernatural during the month of October. And I dedicated one whole sermon to angels and one whole sermon to demons. So if you weren't here for that, I would encourage you to go back onto our app or our website and listen to or watch those messages to learn more about angels and demons. But we would see some cosmic battles happening between these unseen spiritual beings that exist in this unseen realm. But because we can't see it with our eyes, we just ignore it and pretend like what we see is really all that there is. And I think one of the biggest problems in the church today is that we have lost sight of the unseen. We, have, we don't live with an eternal mindset. We are so focused on the natural. We're so focused on our daily lives. We're so focused on our families, our work, our school, our responsibilities, our problems, our health, this, that, the economy. Everything that we talk about and think about is focused on the natural. And the enemy is, I think, sitting back there saying, I've done it. I've convinced them that there isn't anything happening. There is not a war being waged for their soul. And so he's deceived us into focusing on only what we can see. But Paul writes, we, we forget about like the verse right before the one I read about seeing and unseen, temporary, eternal. Right before that, look at what he says. For our momentary light affliction is producing for us an absolutely incomparable eternal weight of glory. I love how he contrasts momentary light affliction with an eternal weight of glory. And one is producing the other. The fact that you are going through stuff in the seen realm, facing affliction and problems as a believer in Jesus, is actually producing for you some type of eternal reward that Paul describes as a weight of glory that can't even be compared. And because of that, that is why he says in verse 18, we don't focus on the momentary affliction that we see right now. We're focused on the, on the eternal weight of glory that's unseen. Because what is seen is temporary. The stuff that you're going through right now, it's not going to last. But what is unseen, the reward that's being prepared for you in heaven will last forever. And Paul focused on the unseen eternal realm. And we have got to rediscover how to fix our focus. Because let me ask you a question. How much of your days, how much of your time do you spend thinking about your natural life? 
How much time do you spend thinking about your problems? How much time do you spend thinking about the bills you have to pay? The challenges you're facing at work? Just think about how much of your day, your week, is spent thinking about natural things. Now I want you to think about how much time you spend on a daily or weekly basis thinking about your eternal reward. Which is greater? What you spend more of your time thinking about will tell you where your focus is. We've got to fix our focus and do what Paul says, focus not on what is seen, but on what is unseen. Because this stuff's not going to last, but this stuff's going to last forever. How exactly do we fix our focus from the things that we are experiencing every single day to the things that we're one day going to receive if we endure by faith? By faith, we interact with this stuff over here through our five senses. Our daily lives, like what we see, what we can touch, what we can hear, what we can feel, that's how we interact with the seen realm. But we interact with the unseen realm by faith. Just a few chapters later, Paul writes in the same letter, we walk by faith, not by sight. Faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. So faith is what gives you the ability to endure the, the fleeting, fiery furnace that you might be walking through and hold on to forever, knowing that there's an eternal reward coming to you if you will endure as a follower of Jesus. Faith will help you to fix your focus on the stuff you're going through in the natural and start looking at what is happening in the unseen realm. So the seen realm is temporal, the unseen realm is eternal. That's the first difference. The second difference between the seen and unseen realm is that the seen realm is material, the unseen realm is spiritual. This is somewhat of a rephrasing of the first point and somewhat self-explanatory, so I'm not going to spend a lot of time on this one. But the seen realm is material, the unseen realm is spiritual. The seen realm where you and I live and experience our daily lives is made up of physical matter. The unseen realm where angels and demons and supernatural beings exist is not made up of physical matter. It's spirit. Look at what Paul writes in Ephesians 6.12. For we are not fighting against material stuff. We're not fighting against flesh and blood enemies. We are fighting against evil rulers and authorities of the unseen world. Against mighty powers in this dark world, against evil spirits in the heavenly places. In the unseen realm, Paul is distinguishing between the material where flesh and blood live and where our real battle is with these various ranks of demonic principalities, powers, and evil spirits. We need to understand that in both holy angels and fallen angels, there is a hierarchy of power. There are levels of angels and there are levels of demons, and they've been given different assignments and different responsibilities and, and different authority. Paul shows us that here. But faith is what's required to believe in these unseen beings in an unseen realm that travel back and forth between the seen and unseen realms, affecting history and our daily lives. I know it sounds wacky, I know it sounds crazy, but that's why it says we walk by faith, not by sight. It takes faith. And furthermore, I hope we all understand too that our beings repre represent and reflect the reality that there is a material world and a spiritual world. Like we have a physical body that is seen, but we are also a spirit that possesses a soul that can't be seen. So we are meant to live and exist and engage with both the physical seen realm and the unseen spiritual realm. Number three, the seen realm is governed by the unseen realm. Everything we see in this world that we live in came from and was made by the unseen spiritual realm. Let me show you what the writer of Hebrews says in Hebrews 11.3. By faith, we understand that the whole universe was created by the word of God so that what is seen was made from things that are not seen, that are not visible. So if what is seen was made by unseen things, by an unseen God from an unseen realm, it stands to reason that it's the unseen realm that governs the seen realm. Speaking of Jesus, Paul writes this in Colossians 1, 16 to 17. For everything was created 
by him, by Jesus, in heaven and on earth, the visible and the invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. Jesus literally created everything that we see in the seen realm and everything that exists in the unseen realm. And just like there was a rebellion amongst God's human family, choosing to reject the things that God had asked of us, and we chose to go our own way and determine what, what we think is right and wrong, there was a rebellion in God's heavenly, unseen family, his divine family, where there were some angels that tried to uh, usurp him and to become like him, and so God cast them out of heaven. But all the spiritual beings that exist were created by Jesus through him and for him. And then it says, he is before all things and by him all things hold together. Jesus is the sovereign ruler of the universe who holds everything together by his word and by his hand. The hundred some astronomical constants that hold our universe together literally are because Jesus set those things in place. The unseen realm governs the seen realm. And Jesus will one day, one day Jesus is coming again and he is going to reunite the heavens and the earth. He is going to bring the unseen realm into the seen realm. And a new Jerusalem is gonna come, a new heavens and a new earth are gonna be made. And we are gonna have the ability at that time to be able to see everything that's going on in the unseen realm. Do you know that you're gonna have, if you're a believer in Jesus, the ability to govern and rule spirits, angels? Like that's, that's what we're gonna do in heaven. We're gonna rule. Rule the angels, that's incredible, like that's mind boggling to me. But until that happens, until Jesus comes back and brings the unseen realm to the seen realm, Satan knows his time is limited. And so he's gonna use every bit of influence and power and authority he has to keep as many people as he can from seeing the light of the gospel, from seeing Jesus. That's what Paul wrote in 2 Corinthians chapter 4. Paul says, but if our gospel, and the word gospel is good news, the good news about Jesus, if our good news about Jesus is veiled or hidden, unseen, it's hidden from those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this age, God little g, speaking of Satan, the God of this age has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of the invisible God. Satan's number one tactic, all of his principalities and powers and demons, their goal is to blind the minds of people to keep them from seeing who Jesus is and why he came. That's his goal, to blind you. But Jesus said, I have come to give recovery of sight to the blind. Not only is he talking about natural blindness, which he has healed and he can heal, but he's talking about spiritual blindness. The blindness that has kept people from seeing the mystery of God hidden through ages, which is now made manifest through the church. Jesus wants to give recovery of sight to those who have been spiritually blind and unable to see what's going on in the spiritual realm, unable to see who he is. Listen, we need to understand, you guys, there's a war. There's a spiritual war. There's a battle taking place right now. And the battle is over your soul. There are angels and demons that are waging war over your soul, over your family, over your future. And if you're a believer in Jesus, listen, the enemy knows he can't touch your soul because you belong. You've been bought with the blood of Jesus. But that doesn't mean he's not gonna assign demons to discourage you, distract you, divide you, to keep you from stepping into the call that God has on your life, which is to push back the gates of hell and advance the kingdom of God. That's the battle that's happening over your soul if you're a believer of Jesus right now. There is demonic assignments on your life that you don't need to be afraid of, but you need to be aware of. And if you're not a believer in Jesus, that battle literally is taking place to keep you spiritually blind 
and unable to see the light of the gospel of the glory of Jesus who loved you so much he forsook the glory of heaven to put on human flesh and bone to become one of us to prove to us the father's love to pay for our sin go to the cross and be resurrected three days later so that we could be restored to a relationship with our heavenly father and that's why Jesus said see so Satan exists to blind people to this this gospel Jesus wants to give recovery of sight and that's why Jesus said in John 3 3 very truly I tell you no one can see the unseen kingdom of God unless they are born again And I don't know how you grew up. I don't know if you grew up in church or not. Maybe that whole born again thing was a term of, you know, mocking. Oh, yeah, those reborn Christians, those born again Christians, they're just a bunch of wacky weirdos. But Jesus is talking about an important spiritual truth here that we cannot see the unseen realm, the unseen kingdom of God until we are born again. And he was saying this to a religious leader at the time, a Pharisee named Nicodemus. And Nicodemus questioned him, saying, I don't understand, Jesus. Like, how can a man be born again? How can he be born a second time after he's old? And the next verse, verse 5, Jesus explains further. He says, truly, I tell you that no one can enter the unseen kingdom of God unless they are born of water. Everyone's been born of water the first time. Our natural being is born of water and of the Spirit. For flesh gives birth to flesh, but Spirit gives birth to to spirit. Here we see Jesus again giving distinction between the material flesh and the spiritual. Our bodies have been born into this world. That's our first birth. To be born again means to be born of the spirit. When we confess and acknowledge who Jesus is. And Nicodemus didn't understand what Jesus was talking about because of the truth that Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians 2, which says the natural person, somebody with a naturalistic mindset or worldview, does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him, they're foolishness to him. makes no sense to someone with a naturalistic worldview. He's not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. We've gotta be born again, we've gotta be born of the Spirit. That inner man has to be born of the Spirit. The Apostle Paul explains it this way. I'm just gonna read these few verses then I'm gonna pray for us. He said, once you were dead because of your disobedience and your many sins. How many of you know Jesus didn't come to make bad people good, he came to make dead people alive. Once you were dead in your sins, you used to live in sin just like the rest of the world, obeying the devil, the commander of the powers in the unseen world. He is the spirit at work in the hearts of those who refuse to obey God. Then Paul says this, all of us used to live that way. So those of us who are believers are not better than anybody who has yet to come to a point of placing their faith in Jesus because all of us were once dead in our sins. We used to live this way following the passionate desires and inclinations of our sinful nature. By our very nature, we were subject to God's wrath, God's anger, just like everybody else. But God, who is rich in mercy, because he loved us so much that even though we were dead because of our sins, he gave us life when he raised Christ from the dead, because it's only by grace that you're saved. It's grace that God gives us the ability to be born again of the Spirit. You can't understand this with a naturalistic mindset. You have to embrace by faith that Jesus is who he claimed to be. And once you do, he fills you with an unseen Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity that begins to open your eyes to the unseen world and battle that's happening all around you. Let me pray for us today. Lord, my prayer all week and this morning for my church has been the same that the Apostle Paul prayed. Lord, would you give them the spirit of wisdom and revelation that they may know you better. 
That word revelation means to reveal or to uncover the layer or the, the covering that has kept us from seeing who you really are. God, we want to know you better. It's not about a fascination with what's happening in the unseen world and dabbling in supernatural or cultic practices or any of that. It's not about having special powers as believers in Jesus. It's about knowing you. Give them the spirit of wisdom and revelation that they would know you better. God, for us, for those of us who have been born again, we've been born of the spirit. We've surrendered our life to you, God. I just pray for forgiveness. I ask that you would forgive us for our apathy. Forgive us for not engaging in the battle that you've called us to engage in. For not actively participating and pushing back the forces of darkness in heavenly places in the unseen realm. And Lord, if, if we have been operating with a spirit of fear, if we've willingly subjected ourselves to horror movies and different things that their sole purpose is to instill fear in the hearts and minds of people, God, your word says you have not given us a spirit of fear, but of power and of love and of a sound mind. So God, forgive us for subjecting ourselves to a fearful spirit, God. Would you help us to take the sound mind that you've given us, the power that you've given us, and engage in the battle? We don't have to be afraid of Satan. We don't have to be afraid of demons because they're a conquered foe. You made a spectacle of them, putting them to shame when you died on the cross and rose again. And we are now positionally seated with you in heavenly places, which means all of the principalities and powers and spiritual forces of darkness are under our feet. God, we fight from a place of victory. We're not fighting for victory. So God, as sons and daughters, would you help us to engage in the battle? And if you are here today and you're not a believer in Jesus, you've never placed your faith in him. You've never made the decision to turn away from your old life where you're calling the shots and you're the one that determines how you're gonna live and instead surrendering to the lordship of King Jesus who has given us instructions through his revealed word about how to live and how to follow him, how to die to ourselves. I'm gonna give you that opportunity right now. And what I want you to understand before I ask you to raise your hand, if you wanna place your faith in Jesus today, is that there's an unseen world all around us and everywhere I go, even though I can't see them, I know that there's an army of angels who have my back. I know I'm stepping into environments every day, everywhere I go, where there are demons and principalities and spiritual forces of darkness, but I also know that greater is he who is in me than he who is in the world. I know that angels are dispatched at his word. I know that my prayers are acts of war in the unseen realm. I know that my worship totally dismantles and confuses the ranks of the enemy's camp. I believe that my faithfulness is tearing a hole in the concentration camps of darkness around our city. I believe that demons tremble when the united people of God gather in the house of God. We're not just about as a weirdos gathering in a building to sing some songs. No, we are sons and daughters of the Most High God wearing His armor. And that makes the enemy nervous. The enemy can only defeat us when he keeps us distracted by focusing only on that which we can see. And we neglect and ignore the unseen realm around us. You were created to live supernaturally, but you have to be born again. You have to be born of the spirit. And if you are someone here today who would admit and acknowledge, I've been spiritually blind. I've not understood the gospel. I've not believed that Jesus was the son of this unseen, all-powerful, all-knowing God. But now I see. I believe the Holy Spirit is kind of revealing, pulling back the, the cloud of confusion that has kept your mind from 
believing by faith that this good news is real, that you can live forever. If you're ready to place your faith in Jesus and be born again of the Spirit, with all heads bowed and eyes closed, would you just boldly shoot your hand up and say, that's me. I need to be born again. I've been in control of my life. I see that hand over here on the left. God bless you, ma'am. You say, I've been in control of my life. I wanna surrender my life to Jesus. I place my faith in him. I believe he died for me. And I want him to wash all my sins away. Anybody else say, that's me. See that hand up here in the center. Back over here in the center too. God bless you guys. I'm so proud of you. Miracles are happening. Believers pray. There's There's a battle happening right now in the spiritual realm. And the Holy Spirit is moving. He's speaking. He's revealing himself to people. One last time, anybody else? Say, yeah, I need to be born again. If you're watching online, I see that hand over here as well. If you're watching online, you click the link in the comment section of the platform you're watching on right now. I see those hands over here on the left as well. God bless you guys. God's moving. His spirit's moving. Church, I don't want anybody praying alone, so will you join those who are right now in this moment surrendering their lives to the Lordship of Jesus. Say, Heavenly Father, thank you. Thanks for sending Jesus to die for my sins. I confess that I'm a sinner and I need a Savior. I choose right now by faith to ask you to forgive me of my sins. I believe you're the only son of God, that you lived a sinless life, and that you died for me, and that my sins were nailed to you on that cross, and that three days later you rose again, proving that you are who you claimed to be. And in that moment, you triumphed over the devil. So Jesus, right now, I choose to surrender my life to you. Be my Savior and my Lord. Fill me with your Holy Spirit. And give me the power to follow you and serve you and kick the devil in the face from this day forward. In Jesus' name. Everyone said, amen. Come on, let's make some noise. Put our hands together. The family of God just grew.